Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. So uh, we are... I've got a couple of announcements, and then we'll jump into the episode. Uh, this is sort of... Uh, I've, I've backed my way into uh, an odd series about war. Uh, last week, we talked about Rogue One. Next week, we it's looking like we're going to talk about another war movie. And then today, we're talking about Kong Skull Island, which I recognize people might not immediately think of as a war movie. Uh, and in many ways, it is not. But in other ways, it very much is. But we'll talk about that in a moment. First, I want to let everybody know that my Kickstarter is... Is still going to publish my book Worth Watching, which is uh, an anthology of reviews and essays that I will be selling at the various conventions and uh, film festivals uh, that I, at which I have tables. So the point of this is that uh, in the Christian world, I feel like you know, as Christian film starts to develop, we need more Christian critics, or at least more Christians that are critically minded, and so at the various talks I give at the various panels I give, you know, I, I direct people towards my table where they can pick up my business card or something like that and just say, Oh, a postcard for a podcast. I'm not going to listen to, but there is something much more definitive about a book. Um, I found just from the la from having a table at Alpha Omega Con and the international Christian film festival. And so, uh, so that is why I'm publishing this. And it is again, just a, a book of, of my reviews of movies that uh, people have heard of and have seen and some that they have not. And I don't mean to put myself out there as like, oh, if they read my book, then they'll understand how, how critical thinking works. It's not that. It's really just meant to maybe jumpstart uh, a, a possible passion for criticism, and then they can go and find you know the real critics like a Roger Ebert, the people that uh, that I grew up with. So that is the point of it. Uh, it is funded. Um, it was a one thousand dollar budget, pretty modest uh, by Kickstarter standards. We have uh, over fifteen hundred now, which is great. But the more we bring in, the more copies I can buy and. The longer this, will, the longer I can I can hold on to these, which is, which is great because even at a thousand, I realized that I would only be able to really order maybe a hundred copies. Now we're already at two hundred easily, and it would be nice to get up to two fifty so that I just have these and they could last me for a while. And then you can also purchase the book through the website. But if you donate uh, or if you contribute, or I guess pardon me, I guess the word is pledge. If you pledge uh, as much as twenty dollars, then you actually will get a copy of the book yourself, provided you live in the country. United States. So, um, all right. Uh, so that is one thing. And so you can find that at more than one lesson.com. Uh, you'll find it in the show notes of this episode and you can also find it on the side of the page. Uh, it'll just say Kickstarter. You can click on that and pledge, uh, whatever you want. So thank you for that. And thank you for everybody to everybody that already has. Uh, and then also, uh, Bob Connolly has posted a review of train spotting Two. Um, I have not gotten a chance to read his review yet, but, uh, it's, I'm, personally just fascinated that they made a sequel to that at all and i'm curious i'm not sure if it's something that i will prioritize seeing but uh, it's something i'm definitely curious about but anyway all right so kong skull island now i'm a big fan of the original king kong i'm even a big fan of uh of the peter jackson king kong and then there's a special place in my heart for the 1970s king kong when i you know uh, when i'm in the mood for schlock and uh dino de Laurentiis uh, uh attitudes so uh so i was actually really looking forward to kong skull island but if there's someone i know 
that enjoys the original King Kong, so much so that I believe he even considers it one of his 10 favorite movies of all time. It is, in fact, my co-host, Robert Hornack, and he's here today. Robert... What's up, Tyler? How you doing? Oops. Did you forget that it was in your top 10, the original King Kong? Well, when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I don't think about my top 10. If you recall, Mm -hmm. you forced the project upon me (laughs) and only then did it actually figure in my own mind in the top 10. Although I think intuitively I would have put just, if you pressed me on the spot, I would have probably put it up there with E.T. and those others because it is a great movie and it goes back about as far as I can remember watching movies at all. So... There you go. Yeah, of course. I, I love I love all iterations of King Kong because it's Kong. Yeah. Um, we can unpack my love or not love for the most recent iteration mm-hmm. as we go along. But in general, I'm drawn to King Kong, Godzilla, Frankenstein, yeah. any monster, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. One of the things that it's I feel like there's there's a BP episode here, but I need to define it a little bit more because it's a little bit nebulous in my mind. This idea that. One of the reasons that I always liked King Kong and one of the reasons that I didn't have a problem with Peter Jackson's super long version of King Kong mm-hmm. is, I mean, people said like, oh, by the time that, you know, the 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 older film is over by the time they even get to the island right. on this one. Um, I think what what was OK with with me was that, you know, yes, Frankenstein's monster is is iconic, uh, as is Dracula and Wolfman and stuff. But those are based on books. I guess not so much the Wolfman, but when I think of like I, uh, film icons that are purely the creation of film, mm-hmm. um, King Kong is one of them. The character yeah. of Kong is one of them. He was, he, it was not based on anything. It was just from the minds of, of the writers and the director and obviously the, uh, the sculptors and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so Brian, Willis O'Brien and uh, Harryhausen was involved, right? No, he, he, w- he was a kid. He was just he a kid? Out. Okay. I know that he was... Yeah, I guess he was older, wasn't he? You, you may be conflating King Kong and Mighty Joe Young, because the original Mighty Joe That's, Young... Okay, He yes. was sort of Willis O'Brien's apprentice on that, and was, he right. did a lot of the work on that, because... O'Brien was... He was older at that yeah, he point. Was pushing, pushing. Yes, that's old. what it was. Because I, I just recently rewatched that uh, like two and a half hour documentary about King Kong on the uh, nice DVD oh, set. Um, nice, yeah. It's pretty great. And so, and it does, yes, it does talk about Willis O'Brien and it's often Ray Harryhausen talking about him. Yes. And they do mention Mighty Joe Young and that right. sort of thing. So yes, I did get them mixed up. Understandable why one would get mm-hmm. uh, Mighty Joe Young and King Kong mixed up. But, uh, but yeah, there's this element of like, as far as American mythology, let's 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 look at it that way. As far as American mythology, let's think in terms of like Paul Bunyan, or John Henry, sure, or Pecos Bill. Mm-hmm. Strange as it may sound, I put Kong in there as well. Like this character that exi- that came to exist as a function of American. I won't say pop culture. That sounds a little bit too light, but just as a function of American culture. Sure. Uh, it, did, it didn't spring from a, a, it's not a tall tale or anything, but it kind of is. And mm-hmm. so by treat, by Peter Jackson treating it, sort of giving it an, the, the epic treatment, it felt like, yeah, it kind of fits. This is, a, that big. this is a legend. This is one of our like modern legends and modern, modern myths. And so, yeah, let's, Let's give it well, uh, the over-the-top treatment. Well, we could we could argue though, if you want, because the truth is that the movie or the the story itself, sure, mm-hmm. King Kong. It's it's kind of a you use that phrase to describe something that is huge. Yes. Anyway, it's sort of an idiom, and it's yeah. it's become an idiom because it is you know what it is. 
Um, but to so to to actually make a movie about King Kong that is King Kong ish, yeah. just like giant and gargantuan, makes sense. Unfortunately for me personally, uh, that version is too long. It's 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 not that it's too long. It's that it's the tone of it is a little bit too uh, syrupy, or it's like too much in love with the idea, or the visuals sure. are a little bit too too beautiful, or so, I don't know what it is. It doesn't feel gritty like I think the story needs to feel. Yeah, uh, I could see that. Um, I think it actually gets too long for me once they're on the island and con- like that T-Rex fight where he fights a, a, a grand total of three T-Rexes yeah. and just goes on and on and on. It's I, a bit much. I know that some people really respond to that, sure. but to me, it, I found it a bit uh, mind-numbing. Well, also, the, the there's trouble with it for me because Jackson clearly wanted to create a, like a photorealistic gorilla. Right. As opposed to, if you look at any other iteration, use that word again, of him, even in the latest one, he's not really yeah. a gorilla. He's sort sure. of more he's human. He's his own thing. Yeah, he's kind of his own thing. He's more human than, well, it kind of had to be in the 76 one because it's a guy in a suit. Yeah. And in the one, the King Kong versus Godzilla, the kaiju version, you know, it had to be that as well. But um, the original King Kong was not really a gorilla when you look at him. I mean, his features of a gorilla, but he's not. Right. It's almost like, and this, I read this somewhere. Um, just in my vast reading of King Kong, apparently, um, I read that uh, like gorillas weren't really that well known to anyone. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they lived in the jungles of the continents that they were on, yeah. and Americans never really saw them outside of pictures and like photographs that the these hunters and adventurers would bring back. It was this like subculture of adventurers that would literally go out just to do things like sack a gorilla hmm. or something or bring it back or bring back stories or stories about peoples that had never been discovered before. They wanted to be the one that like broke branches first, you know, into yeah. these other cultures. And in, in uh, Marion C. Cooper and Shodzak and those other guys were like all into that kind of thing. Yeah. While they were doing all that, they, uh, Cooper hatched the idea of like a giant gorilla. Yeah. And I think he could get away with the models that, um, that Willis O'Brien and, Marcel Delgado and all these guys actually built, you know, they don't really look like a gorilla that you might see because they felt like they could probably get away with it. It's like no one's actually been up close to one of these things. We can kind of get away with it. So that kind of fed the fantasy of that first movie along with a bunch of other things like the, like the cinematography and stuff. Right. Um, Yeah. It's just, that's a remarkable movie. So a lot of that is taken away by Peter Jackson, who loves the original one, like the Bible, yeah. you know, that's, that's a, his, his go-to movies, like his childhood movie along with me mm-hmm. and a ton of other people. So he kind of takes away some of the charm of the first one by trying to make it, trying to make it look as real as he tries to make it. That's, that's actually very interesting. And it's, it's definitely something that separates the Peter Jackson version. So I guess let's talk about, it separates the CG era mm-hmm. Kong uh, into the Peter Jackson Kong, which is meant to be just like, oh yeah, he's very much just a large gorilla who might be a little bit smarter than most, but for the most part, that's all he is. Yeah. To the Kong from the film that we are talking about today, right. which is Kong Skull Island. Mm-hmm. I remember my friends and I, when we first saw the trailer, um, and you see Kong walking upright and not, and that's not, uh, and that is like his preferred method of of uh travel he likes to walk on two legs he's he doesn't really drag his knuckles or anything like that yeah um and i remember thinking like oh that's actually very interesting and that's that is not unlike it put me in mind of the 1970s version it does Um, 
And, now, and also, I'm, oh. I'm afraid it also reminds me, especially the poster where it's kind of the silhouette of him against the sun. Yeah. And the sun is, of course, the O in his name, which is, it's a beautiful poster. It really is. I was like, there's one like right near, or was one right near my house. And I would drive by it every day on the way to work. And I would just stare at that thing at the red light. And like, because of course, because it, it recalls so many yeah. early childhood feelings, just the name Kong by itself. Yeah. But that poster itself is just the color scheme and it's oh, just yeah. beautiful. Yeah. But it Those, reminds me of what I was going to say, I'm okay. sorry, was that that poster and the silhouette reminds me of a movie, another movie from my childhood called uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek, which had a sequel called Return to Boggy Creek. And it was about Bigfoot. Yes. Bigfoot Aren't those in the movies South. supposed to be terrible? Because I seem to recall. Well, I forget. Did MST3K probably do one of them? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's about Bigfoot. It's yeah. or more specifically, it's about the hook monster, H-O-U-K, which is basically a Sasquatch. Yeah. But it was in a, what fascinated me as a child was I grew up in North Louisiana and it was a town in South Arkansas. So it was like maybe less than an hour away from me. But the poster has kind of a silhouette of a Bigfoot-ish monster yeah. kind of in, in a bog, in a boggy creek. Yeah. And uh, and so it kind of reminded me of that too. So it's sort of like twofold memory thing yeah. happening as I'm looking at that poster. And how could I not love it already just by Ex the poster? Right. So... I mean, I didn't necessarily grow up with King Kong. I mean, I saw it when I was pretty young and started getting into movies. But even before that, I think I just, I feel like it's it, it's very much a function of culture, cultural osmosis. I think if I were to talk to almost anybody, they would know the story of King Kong, even if they haven't officially seen any version of it. Just like mythology, American yeah. mythology. Which is something I find kind of uh, amazing. But nonetheless, I was excited for the Peter Jackson King Kong. Sure. And... When I heard the announcement of this, I remember thinking like, okay, you have my attention. Then when I saw the poster and then when I saw the trailer, it is, it was one of my more anticipated mm -hmm. films of the last several months. Yeah. Um, you know, other people were very excited for Logan and indeed I was excited as well. Which has the same poster, by the way. It does. Yeah. That silhouetted. It's the uh, O behind him. Yeah. It's kind of sunset silhouette. I want to see a Logan versus Kong movie. That's what <laughs> There I want. you go. Um, I would see that. But, yeah. uh, but I was, and, and when I talked to my, you know, my fellow film students, it's not, they don't care, you know, they're all being pretentious film sure. students and stuff. I'm joking. Of course, they're very good people, but by and large, they don't seem to care much for blockbusters and that sort of thing. Whereas, and year to year, uh, blockbusters very seldom make it even close to my top 10, but every once in a while uh, it surprises me. And we rarely talk about them here. Or yeah. At least I do. Don't. Yeah. But, uh, but I was still excited for it. And as the, and so when I finally went to see the film, it was the, it, I wanted to see it opening day, but it didn't turn out that way. So I saw it the next day. And, uh, as the lights went down, I had the thought of, have I built this up too much? <laughs> Can any film possibly live up to what I have? I didn't think it was going to be genius or anything, but just my excitement level was, I would say almost childlike hmm. um, because I really liked the idea of an aggressive Kong. Not like, I think part of the, not even necessarily a problem, but a, a potential problem with Peter Jackson's Kong is that he knows we already know the story. And so he knows that we know that Kong is actually kind of a gentle soul. Sure. And so he treats a, he treats Kong that He's way. only provoked in yes. anger. Whereas this is, it's a different story. Uh, it's not the one that we know. He's not taken off the island or anything like that. Uh, and just in those trailers, you really get the impression that Kong is, 
that they're probably not going to tr- turn him into a, a full on villain, but he is scary. Mm-hmm. He is a, he is very frightening. And so I was, I was excited to see something a little bit new. Uh, even if some, even if it were, even if it was associated with something I was already familiar with. Mm-hmm. And so I went in to see it and after the film was over, I remember thinking like, okay, that definitely could have been better, but where it is good, I think it is great. So I'd say it, it averages out to probably a B or a B plus. Now, we haven't talked about this at all, so I'm actually right. anxious to find out what those points are that are good to you. Yes. I think we can all probably guess what the bad points are because they're, they're just they're very obvious bad sure. points of the movie. And, and I'm fine to, to touch on those. Now, I get the impression, it's just a hunch because I tend to, because you tend to not really like any movies. Um, <laughs> it just, uh, I don't even I'm know where to, that's coming I'm from. I'm going to assume that I like this movie more than you. Uh, I think, the fact that you want to talk about it on the show tells me that you already tells me that you like it more than I did than I did. Or I'll, do. I'll be honest; it was something of a haphazard decision. But uh, okay, but at this, but I'm excited now. That's, yeah, uh, I'm, I, I'm. I am genuinely anxious to hear what you say about it. Because not because I want to argue it, but because I myself was excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I don't think I was disappointed by it. Okay, but let me explain what that what I mean by that. I, and it goes back a little ways, but it's not a long story. Um, I I think for the foreseeable future, I have been trained to not be excited for movies since I saw Super 8. Because okay. that childlike excitement that you sure. described previous this movie and prior to this movie, I had for Super 8. I, you can ask my wife. We, we were waiting outside in the lobby to go into the theater, and I was I was trembling. I was so excited <laughs> because it was like, it looked like a Spielberg movie. I love Spielberg movies. It was harkening back to all that stuff. And alien movie, just all, everything about it just like was me and, mm-hmm. uh, young kids into film, you know, it's all this stuff. And I walked in and saw the movie and I was so furious yeah. at this movie for all the reasons we've talked about. And I've talked about ad nauseum with other people. Um, and I went back the next day to see it again. I thought maybe it was my mood. Maybe I was yeah. too excited. I should just take it down a few notches, see it with a little more level head. I hated it even more. And I just, so I don't. Even if it's Kong, a yeah. new Kong movie, a King Kong movie. I'm like, this is like, this is catnip for me. It's like, yeah. and I even hate cats and it was catnip <laughs> for me. That's how much I was excited for. But, um, not my cats, obviously. No, love I love your cats. cats. Of course. That one, you. I'm holding one right now oh. and burying my face in it, even though I'm allergic to it. I will have to, uh, edit in a meow sound <laughs> uh, when I put this together. But I was, uh, so I went into this movie kind of. I was definitely excited because Kong, just the word, mm. excites me. Um, uh, but lowered expectations just because I don't want to get disappointed too much. Yes. And also because I, I for, for, I mean, you described like, clearly they want you to know going in that it's not the gentle yeah. old soul King Kong. It's a new Kong with a new aggressive attitude, the movie and the, the creature itself. Yeah. And so I, I thought, and I was surprised at myself how quickly I came to this conclusion or had this decision this sort of mental gymnastic, but I, I said to myself, okay, so they changed Kong. Okay, that's fine. It's a war movie. It's an action movie. It's an action right. movie version of King Kong. I'm fine with that. They probably won't come back to New York City. I don't know anything. I didn't read anything about it before I yeah. went in. So I went in and I wasn't disappointed, but the flaws kind of make you mad. Sure. Um, because you want this thing that you are emotionally attached to, this name, this figure, this mythology um, to be treated respectfully. And when they don't take the time just to fix a few story things or just to shave or combine a few characters, shave off or combine a few characters, yeah. it's like, why not just do that and make it better? 
um, because the effects are there. We'll talk about that more. Right. Um, the, the, it feels like there's a through line that, that works in terms of the emotion of it. Um, the war theme is solid. Yeah. Um, but the story is just like you, you're like checking your watch too many times. It's like, what's going on? I don't really know what they're doing. All that stuff really works against it. So, but I wasn't disappointed in it. And so I will recommend this movie to people because it's fun. Yeah. And I'll, I'll recommend it to because it's beautiful. And I'm not a CGI guy, but it's just thoroughly CGI. So you just sort of have to accept it. Yeah. And uh, and it's fun. It's got so much fun stuff in it that yeah. if you're a Kong fan, that you just can't hate it. Yeah. I mean, the, the theater where I saw it, um, you know, I, I, I was kind of kicking myself and I realized I don't go to movies opening weekend. And I certainly don't go at 8 p.m. on a Saturday night. Wow. And I thought, like, this is going to be bad news because it sounds strange, but opening weekend is kind of, I view it as sort of amateur hour. It's when people that don't usually care about movies will go see a movie if it looks particularly good. Hey, look, good it's a new them. movie. Let's go. Something like that, yes. Uh, and so people were kind of... Are, uh, certain groups of people had me worried, uh, you know, teenagers. These are the, the cell phone users. Yeah. During the movie. Um, movie starts. And what's interesting is I saw it at the Arclight. There were no trailers. They specifically went out of their way to say, now there are no trailers for this screening. And so the movie just started. I love that. It's very strange. Yeah, I've seen movies like that way as well. I didn't know I was seeing that, uh, but it was... Uh, it feels more official or formal. It feels formal. Honestly, it feels like a press screening, kind of. Yeah. Um, and I'll say this, no one said a word, like no one, hmm. no one was talking. They were into the movie. Awesome. And then when the movie was over, everybody applauded. Great. So it was, so I was in a, a theater that was very open to, to this film, but uh, yeah. Uh, so I do want to talk about what I, what I liked about the movie, what I didn't like, and then what it got me thinking about. Um, I will start, we'll start negative and then start going positive. Um, I think for me, the two biggest issues one is that I didn't get enough of a sense of who Kong is. Agreed. I got some, and I do like the idea that he is um, enigmatic. That that we don't just have everything figured out. You know, there is a uh, there's a big question as to why does Kong just randomly start protecting villagers against the other monsters? I feel like without resorting to um exposition you know plot exposition or anything like that i feel like you can hint at that um you know something about the old the classic king kong story is you know what is it ann darrow is the name of mm -hmm. the the woman that yes. he, whether it be the the jackson version or the uh or the original and even the 1970s one which suggests that it's more sexual than anything <laughs> oddly enough um it's very clear that he has a relationship with her and you actually see it develop so he feels something for her whereas with this he does seem to have something uh, a certain fondness for humanity in general except when it's attacking him uh, obviously um and I don't really know why. Can I ask? I, I need to ask you a question because okay. I, I honestly, now this is, I think this is the first time that I've, we've talked about a movie that I didn't just see okay. like either for the first time or again. Um, it's been a couple of weeks ago. I saw it on opening weekend as well. And uh, so some of it has slipped from memory, Okay, but I don't really recall, like how, how, how does it, 
how does the movie tell you that he's protecting the villagers versus just attacking a monster that's just out there? John C. Riley says it that uh, that he he's he they're in that room with like all the d- different designs that the, right. that the natives have yes. made, and he's explaining that you know there are all these monsters on here, and he said. You know, and then we noticed that some of them started protecting us from the other ones, you know, and it's clear that that is what Kong does. And then, you know, there's the giant wall and he said, and they said, oh, is that to keep out Kong? And he says, no, that's, that's to keep out the other one. It sounds like it's it's very clear that, that the villagers view Kong as on their side and the other monsters are not. It's funny because maybe it's simply because he's a humanoid figure and they've, they've read that into his actions, but because sure. there's nothing in the movie that, that I can recall that actually shows King Kong, like looking at the villagers and going, got right. this one. And then, you know, you know, obviously when you, but uh, so, even a, a subtle thing, like that, the, I don't think the filmmakers were outside of John C. Riley's line tell you that that is what Kong yeah. is doing. And that, that's fine with me, I, it, but it seems more reasonable to believe that they have just assumed that that or that that's what they like to think because he's humanoid because sure. he is killing things that could kill them easily and he seems to leave them alone because he's that's what gorillas do just leave you alone until you provoke him yeah and honestly i, I kind of wish that they had removed that line from john c Riley or that explanation because it that just sort of forces us to see kong as a hero of sorts yeah I like the idea more that he is just not unlike Godzilla. I, I actually liked Godzilla because when Godzilla is fighting that monster and then like the, the paratroopers are, are coming down and they're going past them. It's so obvious. Godzilla doesn't care about us at all. I, We're I not totally even agree. there. We I don't love even that register. I love that about it. And also I, I, I felt like that, uh, at least to a point now that we're talking about it, but just to a point, it feels like these guys took uh, sort of a page from Gareth Edwards and uh, allowed nature to seem like nature. Yeah, I and think the, so. the scene where King Kong is like, he's like squatting down in the water and he's like cleaning his wound and then he kills it and eats. He doesn't just kill something, he eats yeah. it because that's what he would do. Yes. Like an animal. And the buffalo, the, or the water buffalo creature mm-hmm. is wa- walking around. It's just there. It's not like it's attacking them. It's just, yeah. it's a Gareth Edwards sort of world, which is, you know, for a good reason, because they want to meld these at some point. But Well, and, and it definitely fits with something that John Goodman's character is saying early in the film, this idea that, like, this isn't actually our world. We've, yeah. we only think we run it. And so the idea that Godzilla or King Kong or these other monsters... If they notice a, notice us at all, it's to see us as a potential food source. But for the most part, we don't even register. I like that a lot more. Yeah. But and I understand why you know they they feel like they need to make Kong kind of noble. But I wish that they had removed that. And it's clear that he doesn't hurt the villagers, but he also doesn't care about them either. Yeah. And and. And the villagers have taken that as, hey, that's good enough for me. Yeah. Um, well, if you look at the old movies as well, the old iterations yeah. of King Kong, it's like, if memory, again, I'm just looking at my memory, so I could be wrong. But it seems like every time he's killing a dinosaur or a giant snake or whatever it is, in whichever version it is, it's to protect Anne, who he has already sure. created a, a bond with. Yes. So he's protecting this thing that is his by killing a T-Rex or something, as opposed to he's got his mind on the entire village and he wants to make sure that they're okay, so I'm going to kill this T-Rex, which this movie feels more like, which is weird. 
Well, and, and even in the original King Kong, when he's in the city and he's looking for Anne and he picks up a woman that is not her and it, and oh he, just, gosh, dro- and he just drops her. Yeah. I might even eat her. Yeah, he, he, he just drops her. <laughs> okay. Um, he eats to her death. Sure. He eats one of the natives. He kills her. Um, and that's the thing is, and that's something an animal would do. That's something he knows he has a bond with a human, but he doesn't even register that humans have value. Yeah. He, he doesn't extrapolate that because he values this one, they are all important. No, it's, I like this one. Oh, this woman is not it. Goodbye. And and I would have liked more of that in this. We get some of it, like you said, like when he f- starts fighting that octopus, I think that's a, we get like little glimpses into what his life must be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he feels emotions as animals feel emotions, but he doesn't process it the way we do. And so, yeah, so to ascribe motive onto Kong that we don't really see anywhere else in the film is something that I feel like it just, it it almost forces you to feel unfulfilled mm-hmm. by, by the lack of motivation in his actions. Right. We do see him, uh, rescue, <clears throat> excuse me, rescue Brie Larson's character, but he's developed a slight bond with her, but only the slightest, which yeah. brings me to the second thing I, I, that bothers me is, um, this is definitely an ensemble cast. There are a number of characters. Some of them, I think, are fleshed out as well as they can be. Others are not really fleshed out at all. And that, that such is the nature of a movie like that. But the problem is, looking at this cast, you got Tom Hiddleston, Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, John C. Riley, John Goodman, Shea Wiggum, Toby Cabell, and a number of others. It seems to me that, all right, you need to flesh out Hiddleston, Jackson, Larson, Riley, and Goodman. Mm-hmm. Those are your fi- those are the five biggest actors. Um, they don't all need to be leads. You pick two leads. You have the other three be firm supporting. Maybe have a villain in there, which they do have. And then you have all the soldiers, and you allow them to be like bit parts who have little flares of personality. That's fine. That's how it should it's work. Like a good war movie. Yeah, like exactly. Um, but as it is. It focuses so much on the grunts, which I like. I do like that it humanizes them so that when they do die, it is a sad thing. But in doing so, it actually winds up shortchanging specifically Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson. Oh, absolutely. Those, they are both wonderful actors mm-hmm. given almost nothing, almost nothing yeah. to do. And frankly, I would have liked to see maybe one or two more good scenes with John Goodman because in a way... He's not super, he's not super unlike Samuel L. Jackson. He seems to have a certain vendetta against Mm -hmm. monsters in general, and he's devoted his life to exposing them. And he seems to be doing that with a certain malicious intent. Um, But he still, he's not quite as aggressive as Samuel L. Jackson. So I would have liked the, I, I would have liked the two of them talking and, and maybe, sort of verbalizing the differences in their approach. Yeah. Um, now we'll never know about Goodman. Yeah. And that's... <laughs> or Jackson, really. Oh, yeah. No, they're both gone. No, they, they, they didn't make moment it. Moment of silence. Um, but, uh, and so, you know, they give Tom Hilston a little bit, and then they give with, you know, the, his father being gone or something like that. And that's actually gets into a theme that we're not going to talk about, and it's touched on very briefly is like, the role of parents and fathers or often absent fathers mm. is a big part of this film. Interesting. Um, if you want to like... Including Kongs. Yeah. 
Exactly. <laughs> um, no. I mean, it's Toby Cabell's character feels he worries that he's not a good father to his son. Tom Hiddleston's father was lost in the war. Kong loses his parents. And then Riley John is C. A, Riley is a father who yeah. is, lo- who is lost and never knew his son. Well, wow. like there's a lot going on there. And I would have liked it more developed more as a theme than just a motif. Um, but that's kind of the only thing they give Hiddleston and Brie Larson. They make her, okay, she's an anti-war photographer. What I will say, as strange as it may sound, so I'm married to a photographer. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like when you see, uh, like back in high school, um, when I was an actor and I would act in uh, various plays, one thing that my that was suggested to me by my instructor was, hey, you, you're characters tend to wear a lot of suits. You need to get used to wearing suits just in real life. Because if you're going to be convincing playing a character who is wearing a suit, uh, you can always, you can tell when someone, when like, especially a young kid just isn't used to this, isn't used to having a tie around their neck or right. anything like that. So I started wearing suits and actually it's something that I was complimented on later <laughs> is, oh, you look like you actually are very comfortable in a suit. Huh. Uh, and I often, I would play lawyers and businessmen and yeah, it, along those lines, I don't believe that Brie Larson is a photographer. I don't believe no. that she handles cameras at all. Yeah. She seems there needs to be it it really needs to be an ex- it's not unlike a, a character who carries a gun it is an extension of you this is who you are really and when i see the way jen operates uh as a wedding photographer um just having a camera at the ready at the ready and having it be an instinct instead of i will now grab for my camera being a photographer as i am <laughs> it's not that and that is what i got from brie larson i don't necessarily blame her it's more just they needed to put more, th- if sure. they put more thought into the character, I think that would have occurred to them. Of course. Um, but yeah, those, those two who are the ostensible leads uh, just vanish from my mind. I don't understand why these actors, uh, I mean, she just won an Oscar. Let's yeah. Let's not forget. Why does she take this role? Um, why, why, why doesn't she read the script before she says yes? Or I guess, I mean, I, I know enough about filmmaking, obviously, that things change after you say yes. Sure. Scripts change or scenes get cut after they're shot. That kind of thing. But I can't imagine that, given what we do see, that there was really much more that could have added to that character, given everything else that was going on. And I can't imagine that there's much hope for franchise there either. Hmm. Because given that Godzilla... Okay, so everybody... Kong and the Godzilla from 2014, it is revealed that they are in the same shared universe, not unlike the Marvel movies. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing, though. Godzilla takes place in 2014. Kong takes place in the 1970s. They'll, uh, they'll explain that, I'm sure. I'm sure they will. But if you're one of the actors in oh, Kong... Oh, I see. And then we just, you know, fast forward to the, the 2010s. Well, you can't hope to be cast again. You can't hope to be to play that character well, again. Remind, remind me, though, because how did they discover Godzilla? Was, was he hatched or something in the midst of the movie, like the timeline of the movie? Or I had he been so. around for I think he's, years? Ju- he's just always been around, and there well, are like legends they, of him. They can just make him, well, but then they can't, I got gotcha. you. They can't set the uh, the combined movie in 73 or 74. Right. Because then there would have been stories, oh, he's back. Well, it's, honestly, they can... 
because we're dealing with monsters, even Kong, they can be as old as they need to be. So you could, if you bring Kong back, you could bring him back now in present day. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're one of the actors from Kong, you're not coming back. You're like, oh, uh, they will. If they, if the character comes back, they will cast an older actor or put you in terrible old age makeup. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I also don't understand why Hiddleston and, and Brie Larson, aside from maybe there's more in the script, I don't understand what the appeal was, except maybe money. I mean, has Hiddleston know. been in a lot of American movies? He's in the Avengers movies. He is oh. uh, Loki. Oh, he, see, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. Right. Like I said, you don't really like <laughs> movies. Um, but, I don't really uh, pay attention, I guess is the problem. Yeah. I mean, the the... If there is a primary villain in the Avengers series, it is Loki. He shows up in at least four of them. Oh, that's him. So, well, he's in heavy makeup. So how how could I have heavy known? makeup? He looks like himself. And he wears like a funny hat. He does. <laughs> he does wear a funny hat, which oddly enough is a, is in the makeup department. Um, huh. So, so those are the big things that I don't like about the film. Oh, and also this is a kind of a small thing. But it fits into the larger discussion about war uh, from last week and and next week. So there is a very specific genre of uh, banter that you will often find in platoon movies, whether they, it could be Aliens, it could be the movie Platoon, it could be Saving Private Ryan, it could be Rogue One, it could be Kong Skull Island, where it's just this, the, the grunts just kind of josh each other back and forth and all that. Trope. It's a, it, is a, it is a trope. And now just because something is a trope doesn't mean it's bad, but it can be done poorly. And I think it is done poorly in Kong Skull Island. Like it just, it seemed like the actors, I don't blame the actors. It just felt like they're saying standard lines as opposed to. That uh, reminds me. I'm so sorry, but that it just flashed in my memory. I, I talked recently, well, not recently, a few years ago about Transformers at length, mm-hmm. all three movies. And the first movie, there's a scene in the helicopter toward the beginning where three of the characters are like, doing whatever they're going somewhere and it's like soldiers and one guy says something like uh man i can't wait to get home and hold my baby for the first time yeah and another guy's like man i can't wait to get back and eat a hot dog at dodger stadium yeah and it's just the most i'm like okay so is this a parody of a movie and it wasn't um it was it like, is it just didn't know it exactly that yeah. was my point my overarching point in that yeah. conversation and but not yeah. in this one so it, it should have been better in this one right and it's and what, when you think about it, the idea of like, oh, uh, John C. Riley saying like, heaven for me is is a, a hot dog at at, at uh, yeah, that's right at Wrigley Field or, or whatever. Hot dogs seem to connect these movies. And yet, that's the thing is, uh, there's a lot of weight to his character, whereas these other characters, all they are is this banter. And and they do give them some good stuff to do. There's a scene where they, you know, these young kids have to make a choice about whether or not they're going to turn on their commanding officer played by Samuel Jackson. And they eventually do. And it's actually, I think a very powerful moment, Yeah, but I just, they give Shea Wiggum good stuff to say. Um, I like what they do with his character. Um, I especially spoilers, everybody for Kong skull Island. Oh my uh, gosh, it's way too going, late. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't say who dies and who lives. You, well, we both just said Goodman and Sam Jackson die like oh, 15 oops. minutes ago. <laughs> All right. Spoilers, uh, <laughs> retroactive spoilers. Um, forget what we said. Uh, but, uh, but when, when Shea Wiggum's character, his death is actually one of the things that made me want to talk about it on this podcast. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so those are the just kind of the things that I don't like. And they are big things, but thankfully there's enough else in the film to keep me interested. Uh, and so was there anything aside from what I mentioned already that just kind of stuck out to you as something that just didn't? Well, it felt like, uh, and this is, again, I, I went in just sort of already giving it a free pass of sorts 
because I, the trailer tells you it's going to be radically different from what I'd seen before and loved right. before. So not much really rankled me to that degree, but obviously the story was bad, like, like we've already been talking about, but there's, there was a checkbox feeling uh, with regard to old King Kong movies, sure. or the original King Kong movies, or most specifically the 33 and the 76, that it felt like the movie was, okay, so we need this, we need this, we need this in order to satisfy a certain strata of the audience who is like, Radically devoted to those movies and those versions. Yeah. Um, for instance, even though there's no, nothing before it happens that would suggest that this should happen or mean, mean anything at all, she touches his face. Right. And then from that point on, he's sort of like helping her or is, yeah. has a connection with her. And it's like, that's fine. Part of me was like, okay, so they did that. That's good. I'm glad. I'm kind of glad that they at least yeah. addressed that need for a King Kong story a second. But uh, but because it doesn't really mean anything, it, it yeah. sort of falls away and it doesn't mean anything. Um, another thing is like, okay, so when he falls back, he's, he's in that giant, he's fighting that giant creature at the end yeah. and he falls backwards and there's no reason for this, but he gets kind of tangled up in a bunch of chains yeah. and it's like, okay, you need King Kong in chains and then he breaks free from chains. That's what happens yeah. in King Kong movies and, or, or the fact that he fights something at all. Yeah. Um, and he has, even though he's not downtown, he's not at the top of a building and he's not being attacked by, you know, aerial combat, whatever. He needs to be swatting at airplanes or, yeah. or helicopters or something. So they devise this entire scene at the beginning where he does just that. So it's like checkbox, checkbox, checkbox that yeah. lets them go. This isn't just some giant ape movie. This is King Kong. Yeah. Um, which is okay. I mean, I, I forgive it. I, I'm actually kind of in, in a very surface way, very grateful for it because I do want to see those things. Yeah. If it says Kong on the title, in the title. Um so I don't, I don't really know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's tough. Like anytime you're dealing with, you know, what, what's the difference between homage and just blatant fan service, right? You know, there's yeah. not, it's kind of a fine line. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes the, the film crosses that line and other times it doesn't like, yeah. I, as it's fighting the, the big monster there at the end, I did have a thought that not unlike when it has fought T-Rexes in the past, it uses the thing's mouth against it. Sure. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, in the, in past, uh, iterations, it, it opens the, the T-Rex's mouth wider and eventually breaks its jaw. Yeah. Whereas with this, it has this like reptile type tongue that like flits out and, or like, I guess like a frog type tongue Yeah. and it grabs his, uh, his arm, which, and in his fist is Brie Larson, poor girl. Oh, uh, that whole scene. And it, and it, and it actually like starts to like swallow his whole arm and you feel like, oh my gosh, poor, once again, poor Brie Larson. I hope she doesn't wake up uh, <laughs> at this moment because um, she'll uh, never sleep again in her, uh, for the rest of her life. And so you wonder like, okay, how's he going to get out of this? And the idea that he, he pulls his arm out and pulls the, and does it with enough force that it pulls the tongue out mm -hmm. and pulls everything that the tongue is attached to and essentially turns the thing inside, inside out. out. And so like, Oh, using its own, its own mouth against it is something that I just, that is something King Kong would do. Yeah. Albeit in a, in a very different way. And so stuff like that, I was like, Hey, that's neat. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then having just rewatched, uh, the, this documentary about like the making of the original King Kong, you know, there's the, uh, there's the lost, uh, spider sequence as they call it. Right. 
where people where like the guys fall into this ravine and there are all these large strange animals some of them are uh insects some of them more are more reptilian mm -hmm. one of the reptiles yes. down there has two legs it's in the it's in the final cut is it in the final cut yeah there's okay. the log the log scene yeah is uh just after that all, all these guys fall to their fall to their death right meanwhile robert armstrong the, the sort of hero guy mm -hmm. Um, is sort of in, tucked away in a little nook on the, in the side of the cliff. Right. And while King Kong is like doing something, actually King Kong's hand is like trying, yeah. is trying to get him because he knows someone's down there. Meanwhile, so, he, so this poor guy is like dealing with King Kong's giant fingers, but below him, crawling up the side of the cliff, That's right. is this two-legged thing. It's like yeah. a bizarre looking thing. It's, a, it's basically a legless lizard yeah. with two arms. And that is not a legless lizard, obviously, right. but... But that is what these monsters yeah, are in like, this film, and that's I thought the exact same thing. And I thought, like, hey, that's neat. That is neat. I feel like that is that is loving homage. Mm -hmm. um, it's taking something from the original and developing it further mm -hmm. with that. But it's also something that people might not necessarily remember. Um, right. It's it's for it's kind of like for the real fans, uh, but did not feel like fan service. Right. So, yeah, it's tough to know if that's if that's a plus or a minus. You know, people say the same thing about The Force Awakens or any any reboot. Yeah. Um, you know, I did a whole mini-sode about Jurassic World and what I thought was not merely loving homage, but almost deconstruction of oh, the original Jurassic Park. No, it's wonderful um, in that way. So... Uh, well, I have another plus or minus for okay. you that might actually be a nice segue for you that's as well. That's fine with me. I think, because I don't know what you're going to say, but... Um, the other thing is the war thing. Uh, I went into the theater. Here's a little anecdote for you. Mm -hmm. Having not really read anything about it. And I loved the opening timeline thing. It's like, okay, in 19, Great. whatever this happened. And then this. So when it got to 1973, I'm like, okay, what happened in 1973? That's going to bring us to today. I honestly didn't know it was set in 1973 going into really? the theater. Yeah. I was totally blind to that. So it, it, it's showing like a scene of, I guess, John Goodman or somebody in 1973 walking yeah. down a hallway trying to get some money. And I'm like, okay, so I guess he's going to be even older when we get to yeah. you know 2017. Uh, I, I honestly didn't know it was going to be set during the Vietnam War or the tail end of the Vietnam War. It was yeah. going to be all about Nixon and all that kind of stuff. And so I was along for the ride on, on that thread of the movie and loving it because I'm, I'm, I'm a huge history fan, especially, not necessarily Vietnam War, but Nixon. I'm just fascinated by Nixon. As am I. All he did wrong. I view him as a personal cautionary tale. Oof, for everyone. Uh, and yeah, let's not get into that. Yeah. Um, I saw time. the look in your eyes, like yeah. we could go there, we could not go there. Yeah. Um, but so I was I was in love with it. And, that, and then I instantly realized in my mind, that's the color, that's, that's why the color scheme on the, yep. on the poster is the way it is. And that's why everything I've seen about it has those helicopters and it's just very apocalypse now. Yep. And I got it. It's like, okay. And also Hiddleston is named Conrad for goodness sake. Oh, and, uh, uh, John C. Riley's last name is, uh, Marlo, which is, uh, Marlo, of course, Marlo from hearts of darkness. Yes. Uh, heart of heart, darkness, heart of darkness. Wow. So I, I was initially okay with this and I was like along for the ride and I love the colors and I love the fact that we're in 73 and King Kong is in 1973. It precedes even, the World Trade Center version, and uh, I'm like, wow, this is so cool. Um, and I, I, because I like conflating the idea of conflating things. It's a very yeah. meta kind of thing, or it's a very you know late 20th century, early 21st century kind of thing to do. It's yeah. let's see what happens when we meld these two things together. Will it be a cool entertainment? Yeah. And it was. And then I think they played their hand too much. 
and the music especially. It's like, okay, so now we're actually in Apocalypse Now. They want this to be Apocalypse Now, but if you evoke that too much and it doesn't live up to even a quarter of what that movie is, then you've lost on that angle. And I feel like they did. Yeah, movies like this are, or choices like this, almost turn me against Creedence Clearwater Revival. (laughs) I love CCR. Sure. uh, And, but man, I've... (laughs) If I it's if I listen to uh, you know one of their albums, I'll probably hear at least two or three songs that has been used ad nauseum. Yes. Here's the thing: to use a song to you uh, to use a music, musician's song because it's effective, that's one thing. And plenty of you know Martin Scorsese has used "Gimme Shelter" like a billion times <laughs> because it's always very effective for him, and thus he uses it effectively. But CCR especially is used to show that it's the 1970s and that's all mm-hmm. the the music is can still be kind of effective but at the same time any number of other bands or just orchestral score could also have been effective you know what does it's there just to indicate that it's the 70s what does this really well is guardians of the galaxy because they want it to be his childhood and evoke his childhood and so they all these late 70s early 80s sort of yeah sappy ballads and all that kind of stuff work well because you haven't heard them in movies before. That's yeah. And every, like there's a couple that we've heard, but then there's several that we haven't. And it's because it's not the filmmaker that, I mean, it is obviously, but his mother made a specific tape for him, just as though if I were to make a tape for you or vice versa, yeah, we'd have some hits in there, but we would also have like, Hey, here's some deep cuts that no one's going to know about. And you're going to be, it's our song kind of thing. Exactly. And there's just none of that. I think at some point they start playing uh, black Sabbath and you, you don't hear a lot of black Sabbath. It's still something I associate with the seventies, but you don't hear it regularly. So I was like, all right, well, at least they did that. But yeah. at the same time, it just feels like, yeah, uh, it's the problem is it's not because it's not evocative of the time in this case, especially it's evocative of a specific movie. Right. And that makes you feel like, Oh, they're trying too hard. Yeah. And that, that really bugged me. But so that, that part of what I enjoyed about the movie from the beginning, I was so excited about it kind of yeah. became an annoyance by about midway through. Well, and we will move into what NC I Riley, of course, as basically, Oh, hand, hand up. Uh, no, I'm just saying like John C. Riley is awesome. Uh, I'm going to say a national treasure. Sure. Uh, and I forget where I read it, but somebody talking about this film said, how is it possible for somebody to be the comic relief and the heart of the film? Somehow Boy, John that's a C. Good Riley point. He is. does, he is good at that sort of thing. Yeah. He can be a very silly actor at times. Right. But, but in, in, in the, in the thread of, uh, the apocalypse now thing. It's basically when he jumps out of that hut or whatever it is, yeah. he's, he's Dennis Hopper. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And I hadn't thought of that when I saw the trailers. Yeah. It was only in the context of, oh, I see we're in 73, we're in Vietnam, we're in, you know, Heart of Darkness, all this stuff. And now he's Dennis Hopper. And that took it away from me because I was enjoying, I was looking yeah. forward to seeing him in the movie. Of course, because he is good and because Tyler, he is a national treasure mm-hmm. and he is the heart and the comic relief of the movie. I overcame that initial, like, don't be Dennis Hopper. And they develop him enough. They have, exactly. You know, uh, that opening scene, I think, is really great. Like, what, mm-hmm. an, what an odd way to start a, a movie with somebody just falling out of the sky uh, and then having this knockdown, drag out fight with, yeah. you know, somebody of the other side. And then 
not unlike uh, you know the day the earth stood still, yeah. a larger force comes along to say to essentially say you guys get along. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I would have one thing that I I don't know if I'd view it as a flaw, but I do think it's a missed opportunity. It would have been neat if both John C. Riley and his sure. friend were in the film, you know. Uh, and maybe even the friend doesn't make it or something like that. But just these two older guys who in a film all about war and being kind of anti-war, you see that these are two guys that were on opposite sides and then became the best of friends because of yeah. these circumstances. And they've lived for many years. See, we've already rewritten the movie and it's, better. it happens. It's better. Yeah. Um, but you still def- get a definite sense of loss uh, of that character from John C. Riley and, uh, but at the same time, I, when he says funny things, I laugh mm-hmm. when he says heartfelt things, I almost cry. Like, it's just <laughs> like, it, it makes it into the trailer, but boy, for good reason, when he's talking with all the young guys, like you're some good boys, you're, we're all going to die together. <laughs> you shouldn't have come here. It's just such a, like all of the, like, that's funny, but also very dark and, yes. and yeah. a little bit crazy, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, his performance is really marvelous. Um, and then I do, I also like Samuel Jackson's performance. It's a bit more, uh, it's a bit more standard, um, but I like his character and I think he provides a, a, a good, I think he has a good arc because he's he doesn't seem like a villain immediately. And a lot of his motives, which is, you know, we got to get all our guys back, they are completely noble. Legitimate. Yep. But you also realize after a while, it's like, I think he's using that mm-hmm. just for his own thing. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not unlike one of the Corleone saying like, no, 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 you don't go against the family when in fact they're really just using the idea of family to just get their own way. Sure. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I like both of those characters. I, I like both of those performances. I, I mean, you know, obviously the film is inspired by apocalypse now, but I will say that the use of color, in the film is, is wonderful. And it makes everything very surreal. They really did a great job of making this place seem not merely primitive, but just, it took a completely different evolutionary path, not merely the creatures, but the place itself. And Mm -hmm. so there are strange colors, uh, all over the place. And it just feels genuinely otherworldly. Um, it, it is like a lost world. You, know. you don't really think about the fact that until you're pressing it afterwards, like the plot and all that stuff, that there's a, there's a water buffalo. Is that what yeah. it would be? A, a water buffalo? Yeah. It just happens to be huge. Um, and there's a gorilla that happens to be huge. Yeah. And then there's these weird things that don't belong anywhere. The, the lizard things? Yeah they're, yeah. they're not like giant something. Well, and let's I mean, they are, but not forget the giant spider. I do like that spider. sequence a lot I as well. I actually thought about you. Yeah. While I was watching that scene going, I was because spiders are terrible. They're monsters. Tyler's cringing now while I'm watching it. That's how much he hates spiders. Here's a fun fact. A spider does not need to be that big to be a monster. All spiders are <laughs> monsters. That is a fun fact. Yes. Um, so, and I, yeah. And so many of those sequences with, mo- with uh, human interaction with the monsters are very effective. They when are they, very like, good. You know, when they're, when the humans uh, deploy like that green nerve gas or whatever it is, and they're all, and it's just, it makes everything very hazy, but also again, that a very vibrant green and, uh, and a monster come, could come out from any, from any angle. It's very 
stressful. Uh, and then when they're dealing with the spider, and I will say the opening attack, not opening, but the early attack from Kong, where he is swatting all those helicopters down. I think that sequence is great, partially because the individual soldiers have done nothing wrong. Their commanding officer, maybe, but they've done nothing wrong. But Kong eats one of them. There's, I think, a very harrowing moment when one soldier is carrying another one from out of a, a downed helicopter yes. and Kong just stomps on them. Mm-hmm. You know, something that regardless of what, si- what side you're on, there is something to me very uh, clearly not very powerful about a medic trying to or a, a soldier trying to help his brother. Right. And then the enemy just kills them both. And that's what Kong does because they are a threat to him. And so I like it does a really good job of making him seem genuinely monstrous early on. Kong knows nothing of the Geneva Convention exactly. at all. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Never been told. <laughs> By the way, why didn't they just call this movie Viet Kong? Uh, because I feel like it's it is pretty obvious, but at the same time, uh, I'm sure someone would probably be offended by that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> ah. you know what? You make a good point. Well, when the whole thing is clearly a, what is the word? You probably know this coming from acting in uh, theater, but a ro- Romana Clay. Rom- Rom- no, I don't know Romana Clay or a clef or something. Where something is basically obviously a metaphor for something else. Sure, sure. I think that's the definition of that. This feels like clearly it's the entire thing is a metaphor for yeah. what happened in Vietnam. Yeah. And so you've got, you know, this unstoppable force that you can't control or contain that's essentially killing anyone and everyone against the, the Geneva yeah. Convention. Um, it's, it's all right there, right in front of your face, which is fine. Well, and I think here's the thing. Any movie made now about wars in the past means that it's a movie being made about wars in the present. You know what I mean? Like the way MASH mm-hmm. was made about the Korean War. Sure. But we all know what it was. What it was actually about Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I would say that any movie made now about Vietnam, because we all agree that Vietnam was something of a failure, mm-hmm. um, if not completely and totally uh, misguided, um, any movie made now about Vietnam is probably going to be about the war on terror. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or if not that, then just the war in Iraq. Sure. Um, and so, because I'd say it could be argued that the Viet Cong are very similar types of enemies that they don't play by the rules. Right. And, uh, so here we have a movie that is itself a metaphor for Vietnam, which I think is then a, a larger metaphor mm-hmm. for a modern day war and maybe just war in general. And I'll tell you what um, what got me thinking about uh, the larger anti-war theme was actually uh, Shea Wiggum's death. Remind me which character he is. He is sort of, I think he's, above, he's older than the other soldiers, but he's definitely below Samuel Jackson. He's sort of the sergeant. He's the guy who goes, who tries to sacrifice himself. He's got like a couple of grenades and the big monsters coming after everybody. And he is going to let it take him. And is he the one that up. goes off kind of by himself? He would, he's a, actually no, a no, British actor? No, that is Toby Cabell. This is, okay. uh, this is the guy that everybody is always, I don't know. The character's name is Cole, but, uh, okay. he's, he's a, an older actor. He's always with them. I remember now. Got it. Yes. Got it. So, at the end, everybody's trying to make it to a rendezvous point, and now the biggest monster is after them, and Kong is nowhere to be seen as of right now. And so uh, 
Shay Wiggum's character, who is kind of seen as a, uh, a kind of a, a grizzled type guy, but also has words of wisdom and is, and is something of a surrogate father figure to the younger, mm-hmm. uh, the younger soldiers. Um, he decides he's going to sacrifice himself. So he stands, he gets a, a bunch of explosives and he just stands facing the monster as it comes towards him. And the idea is maybe it'll snatch oh, yeah. him up right. and he, he will blow up inside of it and then save his, his friends. So he's standing there, the monster comes up and stops and it just looks at him and he, you see like an intensity because he's, he's going to die. He wants to die in this moment. Like his whole point at the moment is to die mm-hmm. and the monster's looking at him and then it whips its tail at him and like knocks him like half a mile away into the side of a cliff. And then you see the explosion yeah. and I had this and it just, it really hit me as it should have, because in movies we do see people sacrifice themselves. You know, we see it in aliens. Um, the Vasquez and Gorman characters, yep. you know, one of them gets wounded. And so the other one stays behind and a bunch of aliens are coming towards them. So they just blow themselves up and yeah. take a lot of aliens with them and hopefully give the other people a little bit of time. It's something we've seen before. Um, now, and there's, there's an inherent nobility to it, but what I like about this movie and what, and what I like about that moment, and it speaks to something we've been talking about in general, is this monster, uh, this is really just an animal. Now, it is smart enough to know that something's wrong here, and it, it, it better not eat this guy. So, you know, it's, it's smarter than your average uh, animal, I would say, but at the same time, this monster doesn't care that he's being noble. Right. It's not going to accommodate his his goals. And so his death, I'm not going to say it's necessarily meaningless, but it kind of is. He has done he's sacrificed himself for nothing. He has he hasn't even slowed it down. He slowed it down just long enough for it to look at him, realize what was going on and swat him into a wall. And that was it. And it just got and and you know and then it got me thinking of various war movies I've seen you know where a character uh, you know we talked about Saving Private Ryan last week um, and that in that early in the early scene with the battlefield well watch out there's a helicopter coming above us all <laughs> where's Kong there's like a 4D situation um, so you know the idea of of in saving private ryan a a bullet bounces off a guy's helmet and he's like oh my gosh i can't believe that happened and then another bullet just kills him yeah you know war i say this as someone who's never been to war um but this is based entirely on on film but also just war documentaries and just stuff you see on the news war doesn't really care about your narratives. Uh, and, and when I say narrative, I don't mean like lies or anything like that, but you know, every single soldier has their own story. They have their own reasons for doing what they're doing, but not unlike when Kong just smashes the one soldier helping his friend, this monster doesn't care that in movies, the guy who sacrifices himself does some good. He usually doesn't fix everything, but he does some good. It doesn't care. It has its own thing to do. It's not fair. 
this is a guy that we've come to like, a guy that is that has been protective of his fellow soldiers and is now willing to make the ultimate sacrifice to protect them. And for him to for his death to mean nothing ultimately is not fair. But war is not fair. And that's one of the that's one of the things about uh, you know Vietnam is that for so many reasons, uh, you know, the argument of whether we should should have been there or not or anything like that. But so many people went over there and, and died. I'm not going to say they died for nothing, because who am I to say what people what value people come out of the larger thing? But when you realize, you know, as a as compared to something like World War Two, where we saw a very clear aggressive threat mm-hmm. in the form of the Nazis and even uh, even Japan being aggressive, um, so it's like, okay, we need to stop that. And if I die, it means that maybe the guy next to me doesn't. Maybe I catch the bullet that was meant for him, and then he goes and does something amazing. But just the way America just kind of had to leave. You know, yeah. Samuel Jackson's character says, you know, we didn't lose the war, we abandoned it. Right. And it's that mentality that causes him to make some decisions where he has personalized the failure of war and starts to perpetuate war where there doesn't necessarily need to be one. And that to me is, is so between Shea Wiggum's death and Samuel Jackson's attitude and the idea and the fact that it gets more people killed. Um, it, this actually really struck me as a, as a fairly effective anti-war movie, especially when you have people that are willing, so willing to sacrifice themselves. It seems to me that if you are one of the people that is in charge, you should do everything you can to keep that from happening, right. not to facilitate it. And this is a guy who, like I said, he, he keeps saying like, like, no, we are gonna, we're, it, it's for it at first it's, we're going to save every soldier we can. And then when it's clear that that's not going to happen, it's okay. Now we're going to avenge them. But ultimately it's, he's still feeling the sting of the loss or the abandonment, whatever he wants to call it in Vietnam. And this is his whole life, and he is going to do this. It reminds me, this isn't the companion film, maybe it could have been, of uh, Michael Bean's character in The Abyss. Um, been too long. But in that case, the uh, the weird creatures, the alien creatures like in the ocean, haven't actually done anything aggressive. He just doesn't trust them. you know. Um, but in this, it is, uh, Kong has defended himself, and he has killed men that we like uh, and have done nothing to deserve such a terrible death. Um, but honestly, I don't think that's actually why Samuel J. Ja- it's he cares. Obviously he cares about his men, but not as much as he cares about getting a personal win. Not by the end. It sort of evolves in that way or yeah. devolves. Yeah. I have to ask you, um, uh, because I haven't read anything about this movie before or after it's mm-hmm. literally just me walking around with my opinions. And now this conversation but has the director or the writer writers, uh, writers talked at all about about whether I mean can you divine from anything that they've said this is what they intended because obviously war um, obviously you've got generals you've got like the architecture of the war what you want to accomplish all these sort of things but there's so much there's so much of it that you cannot control right in film there are are also arbitrary things that come up and you can't really control everything but most of it there's someone there to control it sure so you can guess that, you know, somebody decided, okay, so we're, we're going to have this guy sacrifice himself and it's not going to work out. Yeah. Or we're going to have this medic carry this guy away to safety and he's going to get stepped on by Kong. And is there any way to divine from anything that they've said that 
would separate my assumption that they just have kind of a coldness about them. Like, isn't war horrible? Or meaning, like, let's just be mean-spirited mm-hmm. because it's a mean-spirited, it could be a mean-spirited kind of movie, versus they're actually trying to make a pointed, well, a, po- a point, a sharp point about about war or about the specific war that we have now, which has kind of this faceless enemy. Uh, I have not read anything. So this is based on a number of things. Uh, number one is the choice to, sh- to set it in Vietnam. Sure. As opposed to World War II. They even have the opportunity to put it in World War II with uh, kind of started that, there, that beginning it? scene. But when it comes right down to it, this is on my mind partially because one of my students uh, that I was, uh, for the film history class I was TAing for, was writing a paper about uh, the depiction of war, specifically World War II versus Vietnam, mm-hmm. and how film, you know, even today, when they show those wars, it's very clear World War II was a good war, mm-hmm. Vietnam was a bad war. Right. And if you try to make a movie that shows Vietnam as a good war, you've got the Green Berets, uh, directed yeah. by John Wayne. Right. You know, it's it's not acceptable uh, in larger culture. You, there's probably a way to do it, but it's largely considered not uh, unacceptable. Well, it's interesting that our perception to this day of both wars was fostered in real time by film sure. and by television. I mean, our collective memory of World War II the total war, which killed so many millions of people, um, is thought of as a good thing, which, you know, even me sitting here, I feel like I have to say, and it was. Yeah. Because you were trying to get, you know, kill Hitler or, you know, yeah. kill the Nazi movement and all that stuff. So, so of course it was a good war, but there's, it was also horrible things about that yeah. war and bad mistakes and everything. But because guys like William Wyler and Frank Capra and John Huston, these guys yeah. went over there and shot film that then got fed on by mass movie audiences, the largest movie audiences that ever have been. Yeah. They're getting these newsreels back. This, we've, we won this, this battle and you know, all this stuff. So, um, and this is why we're doing it. You know, there's just yeah. almost like a, 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 dr- a drumbeat of why we're doing it. And it's, it's American propaganda to America. Yeah. And while you can't not say that it, that it was a bad thing that we tried to kill Hitler or stop, you know, stop Nazi Germany, it was a great thing that we tried to do it. But, the fact that we remember it so well yeah. in a certain way has to do with film itself and all the movies that came out. Meanwhile, television. Oh yeah. I mean, Vietnam was the first time that, that Americans sitting in their living room could watch the war on television and see how horrifying it was and how their sons and daughters were being killed and for, to a lot of people for no good reason. And so that, that first impression that America got via mass culture or that mass medium is what we still have today. It's just fascinating to me that that we, we still call it a bad war. It's because yeah. of those first impressions and they stick forever. Well, if you even think about, you know, what are the, let's look at the big movies that came out about the war after the movie, after the war was, was over. Uh, and let's look at the ones about veterans. On one hand, you've got the best years of our lives mm-hmm. where it's pretty harrowing and it's pretty unapologetic about like, yeah, war can do horrible things to a person. As opposed to something like Coming Home mm-hmm. or Born on the Fourth of July, where it says, yeah, yeah, war, Vietnam did this to me. This war did this to me. Like, as opposed to being critiques of, or just even ex- explorations of, yeah, war is a horrible thing. Any movie after Vietnam that was about, you know, veterans of that war, it's very much about, like, can you believe what the government 
chose to do to me. Whereas there is an inevitability to World War II that is understandable. Well, I think that, yeah, those movies are so obviously and specifically about Vietnam, but there, I don't think you can watch any war movie about any specific war and not extrapolate it to other wars and the veracity or validity of war in general. Like, is war ever, ever the answer, even World War II? I mean, you can extrapolate it back that far. Right. And I think I, don't, I think I guess it's a little bit of a, of a misnomer to say that coming home and and uh, born on the Fourth of July are specifically about how we're supposed to feel about Vietnam, or just kind of reiterating what we already felt about Vietnam. I think it those are um, I think the television coverage um, uh, dot 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 all those movies that you just mentioned sure. um, are all sort of underscoring what you know, that first impression, and the first impression is that oh my gosh. This is what war really looks like. Yeah. This is what really happens. And this is ridiculous. And why why go to Iraq? Why why go anywhere? Sure. Because it's just going to be a bunch of guys getting murdered. Yeah. For what? For a lot of people would say, whoa, for oil. Or for what are we exactly fighting? And so there's right. always that. I think the cynicism at the heart of any discussion about war these days has to do with those first television images coming from Vietnam. And it's just, it radically changed any kind of feeling. Can you imagine having been alive during World War II and having fed on those newsreels yeah. and then send your son or daughter later to Vietnam and you see, what, what was that? Yeah. What, what is that? Um, why don't you come on home, son? It's like... Yeah, I remember my, my grandpa who fought in World War II um, and was a fairly, you know, fairly conservative guy, not, would not necessarily describe himself as anti-war, but I remember asking him about, about Vietnam. And even he said, yeah, I don't think we needed to be over there. Like hmm. it's just, and for this guy from, you know, I think he was from Indiana, uh, who was himself a soldier and all that. I feel like for him to say, I don't think it changed the way I thought of Vietnam. Not that I thought it was a hmm. necessary war, but I thought like, oh, maybe it's a bit more, Maybe we're a bit more on the fence about it, and I'm yeah. sure there. And there are still some people that say like, "Oh, it's it's not quite as uh, it wasn't quite as black and white a quote unquote bad war as we make it out to be," which is probably true in some ways. Um, but uh, but yeah, and so the choice to to pick Vietnam versus World War II um, or modern day, I think, tells you one thing. And when I look at who the who one of the writers is, which is Dan Gilroy, who wrote Nightcrawler mm. a couple years ago, who may, wrote and directed Nightcrawler, which is itself a fi- is cynical, but also has, I think, commentary. It's not cyn- it's not pure cynicism. It has actual commentary about it as well. We talked about it at length. You and I. We did. That's right. Um, Refer back to that episode, please. I'll I'll, uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. Sure. Um, and so I feel like when you look at those and then when you just look at some of the things that are said, you know, at one point, uh, the Shea Wiggum character says, you know, sometimes there's no enemy until you look for one. Yeah. Stuff like that, as opposed to Samuel Jackson's character, who I wrote this down, who says, I know an enemy when I see one. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it interesting if you yeah. actually put those two lines together, yeah. just how different, because it's all about perception, yeah, right? you know, uh, and will. And so, uh, so yeah, I do think that I think that there's plenty here. Uh, I haven't. I, I don't like to read interviews by directors or screenwriters about their intent, because sometimes something comes through regardless of their actual intention. This is true. That is much truer than anything they might have intended to do. Um, You're so postmodern. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Not the author's intent, but yours. 
or your your interpretation. Yeah, individual inter- interpretation is kind of what we're about. Yeah, it's, and more than uh, one listen. Yeah, probably most podcasts as well. Sure. Um, yeah, it's it. This sounds a little bit contentious, but I think it's it ultimately comes down to you made the movie; it's not yours anymore. Hmm. You did everything you could to make that movie. Well done, and we will definitely consider it your film and we will try to figure out what you're doing but your statement about the film ended when you made the film it's it's a thing that that bothers me tremendously when like showrunners will come back and say oh no tony soprano didn't die or yeah. oh the last season of uh, breaking bad no people say it's a dream it's not a dream okay well then you should have if that is if you wanted that to be as clear as you're making it now you needed to work harder sure if you, you wanted, failed. Yeah. If you wanted to show that uh, Tony Soprano lived, uh, you should have shown him living. Well, you could also say that that director, knowing that you know that he is no longer directing or making those episodes, is actually just a fan of the show. And that's his interpretation. I know, but it feels like cheating when it's <laughs> the guy who made the thing. It yeah. feels if, like he's saying the definitive statement. If I was a showrunner of any of those kind of shows, I would just back up. I'd be like Kubrick um, in 2001. It's like he said, yeah. I don't know. You you tell me. Yeah. I like that. Mind. Yeah, sure. Um so uh, along those lines, the companion film here, when I think of, because I'm thinking of Samuel Jackson's character and how for his own, for his own sense of pride uh, is putting people in harm's way and does so seeming to care about them, but in the end, ultimately caring about what he has accomplished and that sort of thing. And I, so I thought of a, a handful of war movies that are similar. Uh, there's a wonderful film called Breaker Morant from 1980. It's, a, it's an Australian film. Mm-hmm. But then I remembered that, oh, right, when I was reviewing Breaker Morant, all I did was talk about Paths of Glory. So <laughs> I just went back to Paths of Glory, nice. uh, which is a Stanley Kubrick film. Speaking and we, we won't talk much about it because the episode's running a little bit long. Um, yeah, listeners, if you haven't seen Paths of Glory, seek it out. It is, it is. I would say it's one of Stanley Kubrick's more human films. Uh, I tend to feel he's a bit cold. Yeah. He's definitely not an emotional director. Well, it's the first movie where you really get a sense of his camera style, which is a very cold camera style. Yes. The trench scenes or just the cameras moving backwards yeah. feels every bit like, you know, flash forward to the hallways in The Shining or yeah. any of those other kind of shots like 2001, yeah. the the inside of the ship, you know, just yeah. it feels very, very much like a sentient otherworldly being kind of looking in on something. Yes, that's true. It, it does often. <laughs> this might sound a bit mean about Stanley Kubrick. He often strikes me as the type of kid that would pull wings off of flies just out of curiosity. Of course. Not malicious, not malice. No, he did that. There's he's no way he did curious. Um, but, and, and he's uh, kept those wings in a box somewhere in his garage. Yes, because... Filed away. He, uh, yes, under F for fly. And it's like, <laughs> oh, right, I remember that. Noted. Uh, like, he thinks he's some kind of scientist, and it turns out he's a total psychopath. Um, oh, he's not. But, uh, what? Did you say Kubrick's a, soco- a psychopath? No, no, no. Because I would, I would argue that. Sociopath, Against maybe. That. No, I'm joking, of course. I, he just, he, his camera is one that I would say is, is cold and I would say curious. And yeah. those aren't bad things to be. No, and this you're right. That, to just get back to your comment, it is a very human movie, thanks to Kirk Douglas and the basic drama of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's written by... Uh, so, I, as it happens, I was listening to a podcast called Musical Notation, which everybody should listen to. It's one of the best podcasts out there. Hmm. And it's hosted by uh, West Anthony, who is go. a contributor over at uh, Battleship Pretension. But um, he's just, he was born to podcasts. Like, he's just 
it's a great show and he can talk at length about almost anything movie related, wow. but it is primarily about movie music. And so he's talking about uh, the music of early Kubrick films. And he also gives a little bit of background in general uh, about Paths of Glory. And one of the things he talks about is, you know, the, the various, the, the, the conflict over writing credits because Kubrick didn't really write much. Uh, Jim Thompson is involved in the writing and he was a, a novelist, a very good novelist. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think it is very well written, uh, and it's based on a, on a novel as well, but I think it's remarkably well written. I think you get a really clear sense of who a number of these characters are. There's a lot of, uh, what's called speechifying, uh, in the, in the movie, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way. Uh, and because it's, it's rooted in sort of a, it's kind of a weird legal drama in the midst of this war right. movie. Uh, so speechifying is, is okay. Um, but there's just such passion and such anger and cynicism behind it um and so uh no totally from the minute you meet uh, kirk douglas's character the very first you think he's going to have like an arc towards cynicism yeah but he starts off that way the, the when mcgreedy shows up at his in his little hovel mm. there next to the trench or in the trench um and they have that conversation he's like offering him a chair and mcgreedy says something about the accommodations there and I forget now what it was that that uh, Douglas says, but the character says something in such a way yeah. that you already know that he's fed up with the yeah. war or he doesn't really respect authority. And that is obviously what happens and what you see in, in bold color by the end. Yeah, it's it's a, I mean, I honestly I haven't seen it in a while. I wanted to try and rewatch it for this, but I just did not have the time. Uh, but it's a film I've seen a few times and I do. I just can't get over how effective and I won't say the film is necessarily perfect, but it just feels perfect. It feels so complete that film, like from a character arc standpoint short. and it's short. Oh yeah. It's less than 90 minutes. I think so. It's, it's like great. 80, 80 something. Um, but, uh, and it's got, you know, a great Kirk Douglas performance. Uh, it's weird. He was, he was a very interesting, I say was, he's still around. I don't think he's acting. Uh, he's over a hundred now, mm -hmm. but, um, he was a very interesting actor in that I feel like he never got his due as an actor. People thought of him as a movie star, which is right. Understandably so, but you know, obviously Spartacus, but if you see him in, you know, uh, uh, ace in the hole, Oh, or such a great movie. Uh, out of the past or something like this. Like I just recently saw my favorite Kirk, Kirk Douglas performance okay. and it was totally unexpected. Um, I, I picked up uh, Lonely or the Brave. Oh, I, I never saw it. I didn't even know what it was about. And so I, I pop it in and it's him as a cowboy in the, the wilderness and he kind of wakes up and he looks, there's a horse next to him and he looks up because of, of this noise and you see the contrails of an airplane. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, an anachronism in his own time. It's like he, so it's like the 1950s or mm. early 60s. He's on a horse and he goes back into town to kind of meet his old friend and try to get him out of jail. Um, it's, it's my favorite Douglas performances in that movie and specifically one scene, which I won't talk about here, but, but just really, really great movie mm. and a great performance by him. Unexpected um, angles on his typical performance style. Yeah. I mean, he's basically Kirk Douglas in every movie he's in, but it's shades of that kind of thing. Yeah, it's and that and that is and there's nothing wrong with somebody no, being quote unquote the same in every movie. That's why he's because, a movie star, not yeah, an yeah. actor per se. But within that, you know, as long as he's selling the emotion of that mm -hmm. character, then he's a great actor. He does and it every and, time, uh, he's also in a wonderful film called Seven Days in May, which I'm Love a big it. fan of. Um, and so uh, with this character, yeah, he's just. 
you said he's fed up. He's just done with all of this. Yeah. And, you know, and I feel like so many movies have characters like that, uh, just characters that are cynical, but it, it often feels a little bit forced. I mean, Tom Hiddleston's character is kind of like that in this, you know, they find him in a bar and he's a tough guy and all that sort of thing. And he's just a little bit disillusioned, mm-hmm. but it just feels like it's a, like it's an affectation sort of. Whereas with this, yeah, this is a guy who is barely keeping his uh, comments to himself and yep. sometimes is not. Yeah. Um, it, it really is a marvelous film. Um, so I want to, uh, briefly touch on the, the, ta- uh, the, the themes here. So we're, and we already have in a number of ways, you know, talking about war and I don't usually talk about stuff that's as big as that. You know, I don't want to say I'm f- that I'm like, I'm anti-wars. War is sometimes the thing, the only way to stop monsters, quite literally. Mm. Uh, but the question is, who are the monsters, you know, and are the monsters everywhere that we see them? Or do we just see, or are they not there until we actually look for them? Um, and so uh, I think it's fair to say that Hitler is a monster um, and he was somebody that needed to be stopped. There was no negotiating with him. Um, and so, uh, whereas... And admittedly, Joseph Stalin was also a monster. Uh, we, but we never went the pantheon full on war with him. Yeah. Um, but, and so the idea of, and Jeff Newberg and I talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, the idea of preemptive war is something <laughs> that is, uh, some, I would say I'm, I might not be anti-war, but I'm definitely anti-preemptive war. Um, because there's a, there's a really wonderful little exchange once again, uh, John C. Riley is in, involved. Uh, he has a, the ability to undersell things uh, and thus make them more powerful. Uh, there, he has an exchange with uh, Hiddleston's character where uh, Riley says, so who's winning the war? And then uh, Hiddleston says, which one? And then John C. Riley pauses and he's like, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. And just there's, <laughs> there's a certain degree of cynicism, this idea of, you know, as far as he knows, the the war could still be going on. Yeah. But then when somebody basically says like, oh, no, there's actually more than one now. There are probably several. Um, and just this pause of, yeah, yeah all right, I guess so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that. And then uh, fra- uh, there's a line that I actually do like when uh, Tom Hiddleston's character is talking about his father. And he says, you know, he says, I guess no man, come, I guess no man comes home from war. Not really. Uh, which is very... Uh, very best years of our lives sentiment. The idea that even if you come back, the real, the person that left is not the person that has come back. You know, my, I mentioned my grandpa, he, perhaps one of the reasons that he was very anti-Vietnam is because he was in World War II. He's a guy who had nightmares, not every night, but regularly right up and, you know, right up until his death, you know? So, uh, so my guess is he didn't see much use in Vietnam. And so, when he saw the number of people dying in Vietnam, he's like, okay, this is definitely not worth it. Um, especially when you saw the non-existent gains that were, uh, made in fact, maybe just more losses. You know, what's an interesting, uh, callback is also our, our discussion on the master. As I'm thinking about Joaquin Phoenix's character Mm coming, having just come back from World War II and how kind of, I don't want to say it's brave, but that's a word that's coming to mind. Kind of how brave it was for, Paul Thomas Anderson to have him come back from World War II as a, from a, being a soldier in the Great War. Yeah. But he's completely messed up. Yeah. 
and you don't usually think of that. Maybe in Shades, in uh, Best Years of Their Lives, or certain movies like that, but not like that. Well, That's a modern kind of messed up. It's a Vietnam kind of messed yes. up. Yes, and not and bar- barely that. Like this guy is so specifically messed up. Like he seems yeah. a special kind. But you know, one thing that is worth noting is. Yeah, we didn't get a whole lot of movies like Best Years of Our Lives, but uh, film noir really exploded in the 1940s. Like Mm -hmm. the idea that, okay, yeah, even when things look kind of nice and even in a time when, yes, we won the war, but there is a dark underbelly to life. Mm -hmm. Not merely the the city or anything like that, but just we've we've seen stuff we can't unsee. We are aware of things that we cannot make ourselves unaware of now. See, boy, that's that's the word. I've seen it. I was there. Uh, and, and so many characters from film noir, like fought in the war. Mm -hmm. And though they never actually say that that is maybe why they're so disillusioned, there's a certain implication that that might be the, the, the situation. A to B. So, uh, I have a number of, uh, Bible verses to read here. One is, is what we talked about, uh, last week when we talk about, we discussed the idea of sacrifice and, and making a, a personal sacrifice, uh, as we saw in Rogue One, as we saw in Saving Private Ryan, but we ended with this verse, which is Proverbs 21, verse three, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Hmm. And so the idea of, to go back to like Samuel Jackson's character, he is being actively aggressive. He is wanting to kill things and put people in danger. He is willing to sacrifice himself, certainly, and, and his men for this thing. But it, as we see here, it's better to be right and just. That's actually more acceptable than sacrifice. Sacrifice is remarkably important, but it's probably better to do things right first. Um, yeah. Oh, yep. No, I was agreeing. Okay. Wholeheartedly. Uh, so then uh, Psalm 68, verse 30, rebuke the beast among the reeds, the herd of bulls among the calves of the nations. Humbled, may the beast bring bars of silver. Scatter the nations who delight in war. Uh, and then... I really like this because this uh, this other Psalm Psalm one twenty verses six and seven seem like something hmm. that uh, that like an anti war character like a like Rick from Casablanca would say you know where it says too long have I lived among those who hate peace I am for peace but when I speak they are for war that's um, Psalms one twenty six through seven yes thank you. Um, and then uh, Matthew, and then the rest of these are from Matthew, actually. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Now, as we've talked about on this podcast before, um, if there is somebody in this world that bothers you, um, a coworker, acquaintance or something like that. They just annoy you or whatever. And you just don't want to be around them. Now there's no actual rule that you need to be around them, but you do still need to recognize that they are human beings and that they are loved by God. And so you should pray for them. And it's very difficult to continue to see somebody as worthless or as purely annoying when you are praying for them and praying for good things in their lives. Uh, and so along those, along those lines, like praying for your enemy and loving your enemy, you might still need to fight them. It might still, you, you can't get away from it, but you will fight them in, in as humane a way as possible. And I'm sure some people would balk at the idea of that, but you know what I mean when I say that, like Mm -hmm. 
there's such a thing as excessive force. There's such a thing as cruel and unusual punishment. And there's a reason that we are against these things. Right. And there are laws against them. Geneva. Um, so uh, let's go with Matthew verse 26. Uh, Matthew 26. This says verse 52. It actually might be verse 52 and 53, and I forgot to write it down. But uh, Robert, would you like to read that? Sure. Okay, here we go. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? All right. And then uh, I'll throw in uh, Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So we are talking, we see here, you know, Jesus talking about, yeah, I have the ability to destroy anybody in my path, anybody that might be coming after me. But that's not, it's not loving, but also there's a larger, there's something larger going on right now. And my sacrifice of myself um, is what is involved in that larger thing. And so, you know, when talking about war, it, you can't make an official rule that applies to every situation. It would be silly for me to say, absolutely, as a nation, we should turn the other cheek and let Hitler take over the world. <laughs> that I think is silly because sometimes you do need to, you know, there are plenty of, uh, there are plenty of verses in the Bible in which God uh, is perfectly fine with war against evil, evil people. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so that is something that is necessary sometimes. Uh, but then to say, we have an enemy, we must crush them and destroy them. That is also not uh, the rule for every situation. And so, uh, as we see from, oddly enough, Kong Skull Island, um, <laughs> we see an enemy that you know, when we see Kong, he does seem like an aggressive monster, but we also see that the film does say that he's also kind of a protector, but even if he isn't, he's, n he's only aggressive when provoked. He's just an animal. He is, if nothing else, neutral. And we invaded him. And for J Samuel Jackson's character to not realize that yeah, he's never seen helicopters, but Kong has never seen helicopters before. Of course, he's going to swat them out of the sky. Oh, and also we're dropping bombs. He will definitely see us as a threat mm -hmm. the, and he will try to neutralize it just as anybody would. And so any, any number of people could probably say that that's, I don't know if I agree with this, but a number of people have said that, you know, the war on terror has created more terrorists than it has stopped. And that in the end, uh, it's our fault that that uh, the war on terror is continuing. Now, I don't think I necessarily agree with that. I think there are some people out there who genuinely just are leading with their ideology and they feel like anybody that isn't them is an infidel and needs to be destroyed. And so it's like, well, we do need to protect ourselves against them. But, you know, at what point does protection start to slip over into preemptive action? And how comfortable should we be with that? You know, I don't consider myself much of a peacenik. Uh, and I definitely know that I, uh, that saying this kind of thing puts me at odds with some of my fellow conservatives and might dip me more into, uh, the Ron Paul territory, but, uh, I've been in that territory before. So, so be it. But, uh, but these are the things that Kong Skull Island made me think of. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and once again, Paths of Glory is all about a, a general who, has absolutely no, he certainly has no love for the enemy, but he is so hateful towards uh, the enemy and so high on himself that when there are soldiers on his own side that don't do exactly what he thinks they should do, even if it means sacrificing themselves for no good reason, 
he actually turns his aggression towards them. And that I think is when war has officially warped somebody is when you're going to kill your own men for and not ambition, killing themselves. Because the nuance or the sort of the out the story gives him is that he was bucking for a promotion that he was just offered. Right. So if you do this then, or if you prove yourself on the battlefield today, yeah. then you will have this promotion. So that sort of feeds his, his ambition, which yeah. is already there and his hatred for the enemy yeah. and then his ultimate actions. And, uh, you know, and then the Bible says to not to do anything out of uh, selfish ambition and certainly put other people in harm's way. The Bible hates George McReady. Well, now, for the record, that is not the character's name. That is the actor's name. No, I think he hates the actor. Well, you know what? For playing that role. (laughs) Wow. God is really (laughs) unforgiving in that regard. Like, you should not have taken that role. Good, sir. Let uh, let somebody else do that. Or just have them read it out of the script. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that is uh, our episode about Kong Skull Island. Next week, we are going to be talking about another war movie. Um, and I think I will go ahead and say that it will be Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, and we will be talking about not necessarily some of the war themes of it, but uh, actually larger themes than that. Um, as uh, strange as that can sound, because war is one of the most consistent things in human history. And talking about war is one of the biggest... Uh, one of the biggest questions you can tackle. So, uh, so hopefully, uh, we didn't, uh, obfuscate too much, uh, in this episode, um, go out and see Kong skull Island. It is far from a perfect film, but as far as blockbusters go, you could do a lot worse. Sure. Um, because I think it is a, a filmmaker and writers and actors that are trying to do something with their blockbuster. Um, is it as effective as say, best years of our lives or saving private Ryan or platoon. Uh, no, it is not, but in its own way, uh, it, it, it blends entertainment and, uh, engagement, which I like a lot. So, uh, okay. We will go ahead and leave it there. You can always email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can leave a, a message. Uh, you can leave a comment on this post at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, please do check out that Kickstarter. Um, like I said, we're fully funded, but every little bit helps. Uh, you know, if you kick in $5, that's one more book uh, that we can order. So, um, is that uh, mathematically, does that turn out right? I think that might be right. Um, and then uh, you can follow me on Twitter at More Lessons, and uh, please do like us on Facebook. So, can I make a quick plug? Yes. Uh, if anyone happens to be listening to the bitter end of this episode, uh, yesterday uh, I talked with a friend of mine, Mike Heyer, who he and I used to have a podcast together, very short-lived, four episodes, and then he moved to Oshkosh. Well, he came back in town and he wanted to hang out and he brought his podcasting equipment because he has a, po- a new podcast out there. He's like 25 episodes in called Nerd Soup, which is a great title for him. Mm-hmm. So uh, he he said, all I'm going to do is ask you what makes you a nerd. And so I had some prepared things. Well, we ended up talking for like an hour and a half about all kinds of stuff, including uh, Kong Skull Island. So hey. there's some more uh, sort of working our way through like, is this a good movie? Is it a bad movie? That yeah. kind of thing. So um, I'm not sure when this episode is going up. So I can't tell you when that episode is vis-a-vis. Okay. But anyway, if you want to go to Nerd Soup and listen to some episodes there, they're really great. They talk a lot about superheroes and comic books and stuff. So, um, but at some point I'll be on there in the next week, you know, from this will be going up on Thursday. Um, probably a few days after that or a week okay. after that. So, okay. um, in any case, that's my plug. All right. And I talked about this podcast on that podcast. So okay. I oh my gosh. And then now you're talking about that podcast on this podcast. It's just like, yeah. Re- oh my reciprocal. Gosh. 
We're a snake eating its own tail. <laughs> Ouroboros, if I remember adaptation correctly. Um, the movie adaptation, not the concept. Uh, okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Robert, thank you for being here. You got it. And we'll get you next time. Bye.